Well, good morning, everybody. That was very kind. Thanks for uh, having me back. Uh, someone said, excited to hear what you have to say. And I said, well, you might want to save that excitement to hear what I have to say. So uh, uh, I, it, it is a real treat. It is a, it is a treasure. I have, I'm actually excited to be back. You know, I think it was about the last week of my sabbatical. Um, I was literally, my butt was hurting from sitting around so much. And I was like, I have got to, got to get out of this non-movement thing, you know? So, uh, but I've, as I've prepared, thinking about uh, sharing my reflections and coming to this, uh, this Sunday moment, uh, my, my first point here, uh, I have 16 points, by the way, so um, <laughs> buckle up for those. Uh, but my hope is that you at least grab two or three and go home with something. You know what I mean? It's like you don't eat everything at the buffet. You just eat something. So there you go. So, but my, my first point is I, I, I do feel like a little bit embarrassed talking about this. I feel weird, uh, mostly, mostly because I, I know a lot of you, and I know how difficult your seasons have been. I know how, how, how painful uh, the, the grind you've been on has been. I know how much you could use a real serious break, and I know how unlikely it is that you're going to get that anytime soon. And I've, I just got a really great gift, and it's kind of awkward getting a really great gift when other people don't get a really great gift. Um, and, and I just, so I do feel a little awkward. I do feel a little embarrassed. I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, but at the same time, I feel really, really thankful. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for our elders, the culture they're protecting and creating. I'm thankful to take a sabbatical um, before I need one or I'm told you have to take one. You know, in a culture where a lot of pastors burn out, flame out, or, or, or give out, you know, I, I'm grateful for like this kind of preservation, protection, investment. I really have felt like this was an investment into me and I'm really thankful for that. Uh, at the start of sabbatical, I started reading Psalm 1, just read until I, I was, I'm going to read until I, I feel like I'd land somewhere and the Spirit says don't leave. And that was Psalm 16 for me, especially Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. My lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Inheritance is something you did not earn but were given. Somebody else earned it and gave it to you. And I have felt that's been like the dominant emotion I've had. Uh, so the first week, family went to Payson. Second week, I spent a week with my grandma in Pine Top home for a little bit. Then we spent 30 days on the beach in San Diego, which happened to be the exact 30 days. That was 110 straight days here. Uh, beautiful inheritance, you know, missing, you know, missing was part of that. Uh, I was a little nervous going into sabbatical thinking, just sounds like a lot of parenting. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, and it was, but it was great. You know, my, my kids are just at the age where they started playing together really well. I could dig a big hole in the beach and then just like leave them alone till lunchtime, you know, so not that I was trying to avoid them, but it was nice when they entertained themselves, you know, so I had a great time with that. Then uh, home for a little while longer, I did a, a five-day silent solitude fasting retreat that became a three-day silent solitude fasting retreat. <laughs> Couldn't take it anymore, came home. Uh, then uh, Taylor and I's 10-year anniversary is in November. We went to Cancun for a week. It was, it was uh, really great. No kids out in Cancun. Uh, which made it extra great. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I, uh, I read a lot. I'll tell you about that, whether you want to or not, in a little bit. Um, but I just feel really thankful. I'm thankful for the, this culture of Jesus died for the church so you don't have to among leaders. Uh, not that I was at risk of that, but just kind of like we're going to do what we can to 
invest in health, healthy people trickle down. So I'm thankful for that. So I'm very thankful. That's point number one. Point number two, what I learned sabbatical is that battery-powered lawn tools are not good. <laughs> if you have them, I got to say, I'm, I'm with you and you're suffering. These are terrible. Especially when it gets really hot, you try to mow the lawn, the battery dies. Like, man, I half mowed my lawn a couple times. It was not. <laughs> then my buddy loaned me his corded tool. I was like, man, this is this is the life right here. Just powered all the way through, cut through all the stuff. It was really good. But I was seriously like looking at that contrast between the battery-powered terrible lawn tools and the corded really good ones. I don't want to hear about your gas tools. It doesn't fit into my illustration. So the... <laughs> But it, it's like thinking about my own spirituality and how often like I treat church like getting charging my battery and then I kind of go and try and make it on battery power all week. And how when, especially when it's hot and there's difficulty and just the batteries don't last, they die. Uh, they die quickly. And I think we too often have a battery-powered view of our life with Jesus, not a corded view of our life with Jesus. And just this reality that, like I grew up, and you hear this like verse in First Thessalonians where Paul says something ridiculous, where he says, pray without ceasing. And I remember hearing that and being like, what is that? Like, mumble, like Paul's just telling us to do stuff it's impossible to do. Cool, man. But, the, but just recognizing that, like that there's a form of prayer which is like awareness of presence, uh, doing life before the face of God, being with him. And it's it's... It's like a corded lawn tool. Like it's kind of inconvenient because you have to deal with the cord moving around. But if you want to stay powerful, stay effective, and not die when the heat comes, you got to stay uh, plugged in. And if any of you treat your t- life with Jesus like you come to church and it's your battery, and then you, like it's just, it's not sustainable, especially when suffering and difficulty comes. You have to be connected to the Lord on your own and see the church as a rally point, not the charging station. Uh, if you're going to actually maintain your life with the Lord when difficulty comes. Uh, number three, similar to this, in prayer, there are no interruptions. There are only invitations. It's very difficult and frustrating to pray. I'm sure if you've tried to pray before, you've realized that distractions happen. Uh, you're trying to pray about something, and then it's like my budget. And you're trying to pray about something, and it's, oh, the politics. You're trying to pray about something, and it's, oh, that thing I didn't do at work. You're trying to pray about something, and then it's, what is that person wearing? Why are they doing that? And then you try to pray about something and then the kid cries. And it's, and I felt like one of my more powerful personal times in praying was the Lord was teaching me that he's actually sovereign over those distractions and they're not distractions or interruptions. They're actually invitations that God guide. And if I can reframe and reinterpret my distractions and interruptions and reframe them as invitations, then I'm praying about this. I think about the kids. I pray for the kids. I'm thinking, trying to pray for this. Think about budget. I pray for my finance. I'm trying to pray for this. I think about politics. I pray for our politicians. And so we should reinterpret our interruptions as invitations as the Lord wants us to pray for stuff. And it actually makes it less of a shameful experience when your mind wanders in prayer because you just pray about uh, where your mind goes, and the Lord's sovereign over that. Uh, number four, more adults should read fairy tales. Uh, I read no fairy tales until June. I read all, a lot of fairy tales. I read uh, Harry Potter, which I'm counting as a fairy tale. I know some of you like, then count. I'm like, that's totally fine. Uh, but it makes my story easier to tell. Um, I read Narnia, the Lewis stuff. I read the Space Children, the Lewis stuff. I read Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, and I read a couple of biographies. But those, so I was big in the fairy tale deal. But I think fairy tales do something that other forms of reading don't do. I think in tribes like ours, evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, there's like this pretty big gap. Like we have pretty good theology and pretty poor 
or even like uh, a handicapped emotional development. And there's all this like gap between how we ought to feel about the Lord and how we do feel about the Lord, how we ought to feel about suffering and how we do feel about suffering. And there's this big gap here. And I multiple times was moved to tears while reading children's fairy tales in, in Narnia. And I felt like part of what God was doing in my heart was like, you need to kind of like take it easy on the theology reading, take more on like the, uh, the, the, the fairy tale reading. And especially hearing like the why behind these, to- like how is C.S. Lewis the best, best apologist and thinker of the last couple hundred years, also the most successful fairy tale producer the last couple hundred years? Like that's not on accident. That's, that's a real thing there. And so uh, it first struck me when I was reading Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe and in the introduction when Lewis is addressing this. So like the main, one of the main characters throughout the whole story is this little girl named Lucy, which I found out is named after his goddaughter named Lucy. And he says this in the introduction to Narnia. He says, I wrote this, dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it's printed and bound, you'll be older still, but someday you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. I shall probably be too deaf to hear, too old to understand the word you say, but I shall still, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. I hope we can be a church where we're old enough to read fairy tales again and inhabit the stories and be moved by them and, and shaped by them and identify with the characters. Like, for example, like knowing that uh, C.S. Lewis is writing this for his like goddaughter, there's a story in the fourth or fifth book in Narnia where Lucy's looking on this island because there's these people who've been oppressed by this bad magician. She's going to go find the magic book and find the spell to set these people free. And she's looking through the magic book and she's turning page, turning page, turning page. And finally she turns this page and there's a spell called how, like a spell for becoming the most beautiful woman in the world. And it's a magic book and there's this picture of her um, and there's kings fighting over her and her older sister is jealous of her, and uh, people are upset, and she's thinking, I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to say this spell. I'm going to do it. I'm gonna... And then on the next page, there's this picture of Aslan, the Christ figure, and he's looking at her angry, growling, and she gets scared, and she turns the page. And there's like this effect of Aslan saying, like, I made you, you. Don't say that spell. And that's a lot better than saying, like the, the, what that does to you is more effective than saying like, hey, be happy with how God made you because it, it grabs you, it moves you. And then knowing that like this is done for Lucy, his daughter, and just what, what the effect that has, which also makes me the next point, which is that our culture is a body dysmorphia factory. Uh, lots of people make, will make lots of money off of you the more you don't like your body that God gave you. Uh, you go to the gym, mirrors everywhere. It's not to check your form. It's so you feel bad about yourself and keep coming. Uh, with the rise of um, Instagram culture, visual culture, Photoshop culture, diet pills culture, diet drugs culture, um, there's a lot of people who stand to gain a lot of money if you just don't like your body. And it's a racket and it's industry and things are bad for men and women and they're only going to get worse and they're not going to get better for a long time that if we don't learn to love our bodies that God gave us, uh, we stand to make a lot of people a lot of money that we probably don't want to just be handing our money off to. Uh, number six, the absurdity of trans ideologies will result in many coming to faith in Jesus. So bear with me on this. Uh, just in the last three weeks, 
I, you go get coffee, you go to the Nike store, I, I go to the zoo, go to the playground with my three-year-old, and there are folks presenting as a sex or gender that's different than their bodies. And I see my son looking at him, confused, as he should be. You know, I'm not going to tell him when he says that as a boy or girl. I'm not going to tell him, hey, the sexual binary is an outdoor, outdated social construct. That's what I'm not going to tell him. Say, good question, Jay. I think, they're, I think they're suffering. I think they're confused. And I talked to a lot of non-Christians over my sabbatical, some friends, some family. And there's like really two buckets that I think of people who will become Christians in the next decade or so because of this. Uh, one is people who have these kind of like conservative flinches on sex and gender, but they're atheists, they're agnostic, they're, uh, they're, they're not Christian conservatives, they're just kind of like, don't like the liberals conservatives. They don't really have a reason because if you're a naturalist or you just believe in evolution, then there is no grounding against, there's just what is, there is no ought. And they're going to be looking like, they're, so I'm talking to these folks and they're saying maybe there is a creator who designed things a certain way. And maybe there is a way things should be. And maybe there is order to the world. And maybe it's not all just chaos. And, and part of it's like their, their parental flinch to protect their children from uh, this kind of gaslighting them into telling them your bodies don't tell you the truth about who you are, just like this kind of, and they see their friends, uh, you know, I've seen like more little boys in dresses the last even two months than I thought I could ever see possible, and parents, because they uh, desperately want the approval of their progressive peers, will let their kids do whatever they want, and then you kind of, your kid has a question, you're not sure what to do, and so people are seeing how the kind of chaos-first sexual orientation stuff is unraveling and it's not working and people are looking for answers for the structure that they perceive to be there in the world. The second group of people is people who have been sold a bill of lies looking for answers to their, their pain and suffering and are looking for answers about how do I make sense of the suffering in my life and my heart and my world and they're being told by either their parents, their pediatricians, some pediatricians that here's a solution to your problems and they say okay and then it's not working. And if the church is present with conviction, unapologetic conviction, and brokenhearted compassion, both of those things, I think many people will come to faith in Christ looking for answers. In The Lord of the Rings, which I said I read that, there's this character named Gollum. And most of the people in the story look at him with contempt and disgust. But there's two people who look at him with compassion and regard and even love. And it's the wisest person in the story, Gandalf, and the most pure-hearted person in the story, Frodo. They respect the power of the ring. And they know that could have been them. And we tend to think of sin as doing bad things, but we need to think of sin as a power that oppresses and dehumanizes. And Gollum, at first, was a normal person. He had a name, Smeagol. But then the power takes hold of him, takes him farther than he wanted to go, erodes his personhood, and he becomes a shell of his former self, and he even forgets his name. And Frodo sees him and has compassion, and Gandalf sees him and has compassion. And I think the church needs to 
more resolutely than ever, understand that God made them male and female and sin is incredibly powerful and it destroys people. This is not a cause for smug indifference or distance, but of real brokenhearted compassion and real unapologetic conviction. And I think if we can live in that space, this kind of trans wackiness, I'm going to use that term, it's not a technical term, is going to lead people to abandon their secular ideologies, their idols will fail, and they will come looking for the creator who is gracious. Uh, uh, number seven, more men should take bar classes. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, uh, bar is French for bar. So <laughs> go ahead and write that down. Uh, it's ballet, you know, kicks and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it's good to do stuff you're not good at, right? And I talked to, so I took a lot of bar classes and other group fitness classes over uh, my sabbatical, and I, I was like the only guy in all these classes. And I was asking my, some of my guy friends, why aren't you going to these classes? Like, I want to look stupid. And I was like, well, that's kind of why I'm doing it. I'm like, I feel like I need to go be bad at stuff in front of people and have to deal with that. You know, it's a good, it's a healthy thing. You know, to be the worst person in the room at something is good for the soul. Got to learn humility. You know, we got to do it. Um, also, bar classes uh, hurt way more than most stuff you're going to do at the gym. Low rep, high weight, suffering, feeling the shame of your low pain tolerance. It all, you have to deal with it at the bar classes. Uh, also, I talked to some folks who are like, I just don't want to go to bar classes because it's like, you know, women are leading stuff. And I, and I feel like that's just so lame. You know, you got to be able to learn from women, guys, and get over it. And more men should take bar classes. All right, now, number eight. Uh, grandparents have superpowers. Number nine, uh, the, <laughs> the gravitational pull of our society is towards not going to church weekly. I experienced this more than I have in a long time because I had no responsibilities on Sundays. You know, we were kind of going places, kind of not going places, and it's just there's always a brunch, there's always a cousin in town, there's always a sporting event, there's always a youth sports thing, there's always a, oh, our one kid, I think they had stuff he knows two days ago, yeah, we probably shouldn't go, you know, and there's just, there's always a reason not to go. Uh, like Hebrews 10 says, do not forsake the assembly. And one of the ways we can be countercultural, especially us under 40 folks, is to just make a part of our spiritual disciplines and commitment to show up at church every Sunday, sit under preaching, take the Lord's Supper, sing with the saints, and serve. It's like, that's basic stuff. And I got to experience that. Like, if I just didn't show up on a Sunday, it'd be really awkward, because like, and now Seth's going to teach. Oh, never mind. He's at brunch. You know, that'd be like, uh, so like my empathy for how easy that is, is higher than it was before, because not having to go to church, there's like always a reason not to go to church. And making that part of our discipline, our engagement, our, our devotion is important. Uh, number 10, there are a lot of great churches in our area. A lot. I went to six over sabbatical. And all of them, I was like, this is good enough. I'd go here. That was like the, the, the like there are people, I think they love Jesus. At least from what I could tell, they certainly did. Trying to bring people to Christ, teach the Bible, preach the gospel. They're good singing. They're singing well. You know, it was just like, uh, taking care of the kids. You know, there's a lot of great options. We are really privileged as far as options goes. Um, we don't have the corner on the market on the good church thing. You know, there's a lot of good ones out there, partners in the kingdom. Really happy about that. Uh, that being said, number 11, uh, the Lord's Supper is the centerpiece of Christian worship. One of the things that I felt 
frankly disoriented by going to the, all these other churches, which I mostly am trying to be clear and positive on, was that at six different churches, I didn't take communion once in six weeks. It's just kind of like wild. Like we do it every week here, unless we're doing baptisms, one sacrament at a time. But I think that was kind of weird. Also, the uh, I was reading this uh, pretty good book this summer called The Lord of the Rings. And, uh, <laughs> and there's this part towards the end of the journey when Frodo and Sam are trying to take the ring, trying to go destroy it. They're, they're marching on. It's like this, their point where they're about to quit. They can't make it. And Tolkien writes this. Like, so they're, they're given this bread called the Lembus bread, which is from the elves, to remind them of where they came from, to remind them of who's sending them, and to energy, give them uh, energy for the journey. And here's what Tolkien writes about the Lembus bread when Sam and Frodo are taking it. The Lembus bread had a virtue without which they would long ago have lain down to die. It had a potency that increased as travelers relied on it alone. It fed the will and gave strength to endure. That if you want to endure suffering, endure sin, endure shame, endure the thing that God is calling you to do, I think we don't have a clearer picture of that than the Lord's Supper. Christ has died for you. Christ was betrayed for you. Christ has suffered for you. Christ endured to the end for you. And so we, we, we take that in and it's, it's the centerpiece of Christian worship. Not the preaching as much as I think preaching matters. Not the singing as much as I think singing matters. But the Lord's Supper is the centerpiece. And I hope that we can understand that the, the highlight of the gospel of communioning together of the Lord's Supper, the shared table, is a centerpiece of what we have going on here. And number 12, rest is recovery but eventually leads to laziness and atrophy. This is a word for all of you who are also taking a 12-week vacation or you retired folks. Yeah, so uh, rest is good, but at some point, you gotta get off your butt and do something. And I was kind of losing my mind a little bit of this. I'm kind of a do-stuff guy, you know, and I was uh, feeling fatigued from all the not feeling fatigued at some point. And I was actually like about seven weeks into the sabbatical, I started to be really feel fussy about going back to work. I'm like, work is dumb. Why, why do people have to work? You know, can't I just all win the lottery and never work, you know? And wouldn't that be nice? Um, you know, I told people like, turns out being independently wealthy would be nice. You know, I don't know what to tell you. you know, so, but, but there's I was actually finding like in my heart, like a frustration of why does this have to end? I'm pretty frustrated by that. And there's this other book I read this summer that was pretty good called The Lord of the Rings. And there's a <laughs> section, there's a section of it where they are, on this journey to go and destroy the ring and they're getting really tired and they come to this place called Lothlorien and Lothlorien is this enclave of elvish rest and they eat and they drink and they feast and they tell stories and they smoke their little pipe tobacco and they have a great time and they're this like fellowship and they're, they're resting and they're eating and they're feasting and they're talking and it goes on for days and days and days and eventually uh, the leader of the community is like, hey, you guys gotta leave. You have to go destroy the ring and then Gimli, the little dwarf guy, gets mad and he's like, I wish I would have never even came here because I've seen beauty and now everything else the rest of my life is basically going to be terrible. <laughs> and there's this reality that like you experience a really great season of rest, a really great vacation, a really great date night, a really great whatever it is. And there's like this sense of like everything's going to be bad compared to this. And it, the temptation, here's like rest becomes a trap when you get addicted to rest and not say that rest is for work. You rest for working. You don't rest for resting. You rest for working, that God has called you to do something. Uh, it's not just we rest from work, but we rest for work. And you be, eventually, at some point, you begin to atrophy and embrace the sin of sloth and laziness. Uh, number 13, Jesus loves me more than I love him. And that's, 
you know, I'm, that's not like new information, but it's kind of an interesting, like shameful thing. Like, why would, like, I wish I loved Jesus more. I wish I loved him like almost as much as he loved me, but it's like not even close. You know, not all my dating advice, but some of my dating advice that I was given by my dad was, he called it the principle of least concern. He who cares the least controls the relationship. I feel like that's basically true for our relationship with Christ too. He's always pursuing, always available, always right there, always interested, always connected, always ready. And I, we, hot and cold, hot and cold sometimes. You know, and it, it's, it's I'm in control of my intimacy with Christ because I care about him less than he cares about me. You know, if somebody else was gonna give Jesus relationship advice with me, he'd say, that guy's toxic, break up with him. <laughs> this hot, cold thing, on, off thing, at convenience thing. But yet he loves, and he keeps loving. And he knew that I was going to love him a lot less than he loved me, and he still signed up for it. You know, it's, it's weird as my kids get older, and especially like having so many good experiences with them on vacation, and they're more attached to me, I'm more attached to them. They, we hung out a lot more um, than is sustainable. But it was really good, you know, uh, but still, there's this feeling of like putting them down for sleep and you're going like, man, I love these kids. And who knows how they feel about me? You know, if I tell them the wrong thing, it's like meltdown. You know, it's like just like this weird gap. And just at, at least at this phase in the parenting, like it's totally like what I signed up for and I'm happy about it. I'm sure it'll be different when they're older and I'm older and if they're like mad at me, you know, it's like, you should know better. You know, but, like, but I feel like I'm a child. He's the father. He loves me a ton. And the gap is significant. And it's somewhat embarrassing, but he's not embarrassed by it. And it's just wild when the gap in how much you love someone's different. Like, it's painful. Like I've been in a situation like in high school where like, I like someone a lot and they don't like me back and it just feels like agony. It's just, does God just live with agony all the time about how non-reciprocated my love is? I assume so. Uh, number 14, you are God's servant and God is your servant. Uh, I'm going to actually teach out of the Bible here for a sec. Um, we'll get there. So Psalm 16, we read it earlier. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I remember reading that and feeling kind of weird about that. Like, when you're someone's right-hand man, you're the assistant, you're the helper, you're the supporter. And here, the psalmist is saying, God is at my right hand, therefore I won't be shaken. Saying, God is supporting and serving and helping me as I lead. Like, there's this route here that I am leading my life and God is supporting and serving me as I lead my life. But then it goes on to say, um, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are, right ple are pleasures forevermore. That I'm at God's right hand, I'm God's right hand man, and at the same time, uh, God is my right hand man. God serves me, I serve him. He is the Lord, I do his will, and at the same time, it is my life, he's called me to lead it, and he is helping me as I lead it. Both those things are true. Obviously, if you get rid of one of those, you could get in huge trouble. Right? If it's just God's helping me do what I want, then you don't have like a Lord over it all. 
But I think in our community, it's probably a little different. People are kind of obsessed with doing God's will. I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will. And that was part of what I was praying through on sabbatical was like this, all right, Lord, if you want me to have like a crisis of vocation and change directions, like now's the time. You know, what do you want me to do with my life, Lord? Help me out. And, and I kept feeling like my, my counselor um, and my, my, my friends and even my prayer time was like, well, what do you want? And I'm like, well, I want to do what God wants because that's like the holy, good, right answer. Uh, but I kept, but I remember coming to this text and being like, it also reminded me of Psalm 37, 4, where it says this, um, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you, like also be translated, implant the desires of your heart. Like what, what you want, what I want actually matters. That God has shaped me, my, my talents, my skills, my desires, that he's put those there. And the first question Christ asks in John 1 is like, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you, what are you desiring? And there's an important thing that for, for me, I don't want to generalize here, it feels vulnerable and awkward to say, here's what I want, because you may not get it and you might be disappointed. But here you have God being my right-hand man as I lead the life he's called me to live. And so there's something here that's important for me, which is like, it does matter what I want. It does matter what you want. Obviously, it has to be under like the umbrella of what God forbids or commands, but the specifics of our life, like what you want to do really, really matters. And that was part of my process because I'm going like, I kept feeling like this pressure to have some crisis on sabbatical. Like I went on sabbatical and I thought I want to be this and I'm back on sabbatical. And I want to be that, you know, and, and that didn't happen. So I'm still here, you know, sorry. But, uh, but just feeling this permission, like, oh, I want to do this I don't, and that's okay. I think Christians are really bad at saying what they want and what they don't want. They have to like wait to burn out or like get fired to do something different. They're saying, I want to do this now. That's a totally acceptable thing. As long as it's like not something forbidden by scripture. <laughs> I want to do this. We don't have to have some like writing on the wall, uh, voice from heaven that tells me to do, like God gives us desires as we delight ourselves in him that we ought to uh, manifest and work. Maybe manifest is a weird word. Like live into or, or walk after. And God is serving you as you lead your life. God is serving me as I lead my life delegation thing there. Uh, number 15, a church is neither a hospital for sinners nor a museum for saints. It is a battleship unto salvation. This is part of like my own prayer time. Like what do I want to be? Like this idea of coming back to a church and kind of doing like just polishing the, making sure everybody's like shiny and happy or going to a church and just going, everyone's just suffering all the time and we never like stop getting out of that. I was just, I, there, so when I say I don't like this phrase, hospital for sinners, museum for saints, like I'm pretty sure St. Augustine said it. I'm pretty sure Martin Luther said it. So I know I'm kind of in the danger zone. I'm pushing back on this phrase. But my point is this, is we are certainly not a museum for saints. We cannot say that we are better than anybody who's not in here. In uh, Dostoevsky's book, uh, Brothers Karamazov, there's this really wise elder who right before he dies is telling all the monks, like people think that people in the monastery are holy and people outside the monastery are unholy. That's actually not true. If anything, it's the opposite. Our sin was so obvious to us, we had to come into here. Maybe their sins are not as bad as ours. That's why they're still out there. Like we're all here because we're like sinner. Uh, so nobody here should have this like, we're the museum for saints. Congratulations. Welcome to better than other people uh, church. A uh, hospital, I guess don't, hospital for sinners. You know, the point of a hospital is to leave. Not to stay there. You know, if you're in a hospital for the rest of your life, that's because you're dying in the hospital. Nobody wants to do that. Uh, but, you know, I've been thinking about like what I get excited about 
and it's not, you know, being a hospital administrator, no offense to hospital administrators. It's not being a museum curator, no offense to museum curators. It's uh, helping command a battleship. That there are gates that belong to hell, and we're trying to blast them open. That there's work to be done. We have stations to uh, be in charge of. We have, we have roles to play. We have responsibility to fulfill. Now, there is certainly an infirmary on this battleship. You're allowed to suffer and be sick and have to take time off and regroup. But then the goal is to not stay there, but to get out and re-engage and carry responsibility. That there is darkness and the church is a beacon of light pushing against it and into it and through it. And we are on the winning side. The gates of hell will not prevail. And I, absolutely, but I, but I get excited about saying, hey, what's your role on the battleship? What's the station you're manning or womaning? I don't know what the term is, you know, being in charge of. And like the mission of the church to birth and strengthen healthy disciples to, as it gets darker and darker, that we're going to be part of raging against the dying of the light. That this is important work the church does. And it's not extra special, but it's remarkably ordinary and remarkably important. And it looks like serving in kids' ministry on Sundays and Sunday afternoons, being a mentor on Wednesday afternoon, on Wednesday nights, Showing up to Fuse, spending all the time. When I was talking earlier about how, like, hey, Remsha Gateway, we're one of the fine, like, there's a lot of options. Like, the stuff that makes this church special are the people who are carrying responsibility, helping it further its mission. It's the relationships, the connection, the hosting a small group, the signing up for a class, the being engaged. That sometimes, especially the bigger a church gets, it's tempting to conceive of the church as a cruise ship and not a battleship. And on the cruise ship, the staff serve you. On a battleship, we're all working together. And helping command a battleship is exciting to me because we're doing something. We are beating back the gates of hell and loving one another in the process. And that's the church. So if you've been in the hospital for forever, I want to tell you, like, sometimes you, you, you fight from your station with a limp. You, sometimes you got to go to the infirmary and get healthy, and that takes you a long time. But this is not a cruise ship. This is a battleship. Uh, number 16, our secular world cannot escape or improve upon the gospel story. Uh, like I said, I read the Harry Potter books. Those are the first stuff I read. I know people are pretty meh on those for some good reasons. But the disappointing thing about the Harry Potter stuff is it's just a ripoff of the gospel. It's basically plagiarism. The most read, most engaged with, most consumed book in like a hundred something years, like I don't know what the records are, but the, the two anchor plots of the story are one, substitutionary death of someone who loves someone who needs saving. Harry's mom dies for her, and the strength of that love gives him security. And the other big anchor plot, if you haven't read, read the ending yet or watched the ending yet, spoiler alert, but it's been plenty of time, is Harry offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice who's going to die so that everyone else doesn't have to get killed by Voldemort. And it's like, that's the best plot they could come up with is ripping off the gospel story. <laughs> the most secular, most pagan, most sub-Christian, most anti-Christian, most de-churched, most not-church, the story that gripped the hearts of millions, probably billions of people for the last decade, it's, it's a ripoff of Jesus died for your sins. 
Because in our gut of guts, Ecclesiastes says that God has written eternity in our hearts. In our gut of guts, we know that the world works in such a way that there are people who need saving and there is someone who because of love will save them and they'll do it at great cost to themselves. And that's in the DNA of the world and it's the centerpiece of the gospel and it's the Harry Potter story. And I gotta tell you that if you read and consume any type of secular movies or media or books or whatever it is, like by all means go for it and you'll find somewhere in there they're plagiarizing God's storytelling. As much as you try to escape the gospel, the gospel story's there. You may try to improve on the gospel, but it doesn't get better. Then God becomes man, lives a sinless life, dies substituting death, conquers sin and death, and is coming back to make all things new. You can't improve on it. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us, and I pray that you will help us be more confident ever than ever uh, of the reality of your saving work on the cross. I pray that we can have our hearts and souls uh, reinvigorated by that old story. And I pray that you mold us into the people that can be an effective battleship. In your name we pray, amen.